Well, we will get going. It's good to have you all here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Glad that you're here. We are going to be picking up in Mark chapter 5. But let me pray for us. God, we thank you for a time to get together and read your word and think about your word and apply your word and come to understand it more. And I ask that through that process, we would love you more deeply. We would grow in our knowledge and wisdom of the one true God. And that we would seek to take these things and implement them, apply them to our lives. Um, I thank you for the folks in this room and those who might be listening on the recording. And we ask that through this process, you would be glorified. We would be shaped into the image of Christ as we abide in him. And we ask that you would just bless what happens here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 5. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to their demon, uh, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Man, it's amazing how even just like, I mean, I sat down probably on three different occasions maybe a total of like five hours this week to work on this stuff. And it's amazing how even just reading it now, I'm like, man, I totally missed that. Totally, that didn't stand out to me. I wasn't planning on touching on that. And, um, it's just amazing how you can read scripture and new things stand out to you each time. All right, so this scene unfolds in a Gentile town on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you cross-reference this, hi everybody, welcome, come on in. We're glad that you're here. We're in Mark chapter 5. But if you cross-reference this, this town has a couple of different names. In Matthew, it's the Gadarenes. In uh, origin, refers to the Gergesenes. And then you have here the Gerasenes. It was probably a small town on the east side of Galilee, uh, named a town called Gersa, which actually there is a town on the east side of Galilee still to this day called Cursa, so probably the same area. Luke 8 records the scene very similar to Mark. Um, Matthew has one difference. Does anybody know what it is by chance? 
In Matthew, he records two demon-possessed men. Um, what, what should we do about a discrepancy between the Gospels with something like that? Let me ask the question in a different way. If Mark says there's one man and Matthew says there's two men, is that a, uh, like a contradiction in the Bible, an error in the Bible? Does this prove the Bible is not the inerrant, perfect, infallible word of God? Because that's what some people will claim. No, I just, um, it just could indicate just a different point of view or a different focus. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's exactly right. It just can indicate that they're telling the story from two different perspectives, right? I mean, it is not uncommon. Probably in every story that you tell, you leave out some detail, right? Uh, if you're like, I was driving down the car or down the street yesterday and this guy cut me off. Well, you just probably left out five other cars that were potentially in the equation, but you didn't feel the need to mention them, right? Um, so we do this sort of thing all the time. Is that satisfying or does anybody want to add anything to that or level another concern? Okay. And discrepancies like this really shouldn't cause us any problems. Throughout the Gospels, there are some things like this that come up. Um, but the, these things shouldn't rock our faith. God is true. God will not deceive us. We can trust what he says. Numbers twenty three nineteen says that God is not like a man, that he should lie. And frankly, some, like if this is your biggest criticism of the Bible, then you are sort of being foolish, right? Because there's lots of other things that the Bible calls you to sort of reconcile, make an account for, and if this is the thing that you're choosing to focus in on, then you're being petty. Well, uh, he said there was only there was only one man. What's that? It's not like Mark says there was only yes, one man. Yes, right. He says there was a man, right? Not not that there was only one man. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, man, and what about this guy? Right, like he tears chains apart. He. he I mean, this is just a freakish picture. Um, well, before we get to that, this scene I think is kind of important because it has some foreshadowing. The foreshadowing would be the gospel going to the Gentiles. Okay, here's Jesus on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He's doing some ministry to Gentiles. And... Uh, for the most part, his ministry was to Israel. Um, in fact, at one point, Jesus even essentially says, like, I came to the nation of Israel. I didn't come for the Gentiles at this point. Um, you know, that's what the woman who asked to be healed, and Jesus says, like, should I give the bread that's intended to the children for the dogs? Or that's intended for the children to the dogs. Uh, so why? Why is Jesus doing this ministry to Gentiles? If he came primarily for Israel, why this scene in Mark's gospel? Maybe a preface to say that he's uh, he's demonstrating he's God over nature, over man, over, and he wants to say gentleness too. Yeah, that's good. So he's demonstrating he's God over nature, over man, over all these different things. And he has come to save the Gentiles. We get this. Uh, foreshadowing all throughout even the Old Testament, right? It comes as early as Abraham. And Abraham, you'll be blessed to be a blessing. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Not just Israel, not just your 12 tribes. Um, you know, Solomon talks about, or, or I think it's actually Isaiah, where God says that his, ho his house will be a house of prayer for all nations, okay? So this is foreshadowing of the gospel going to the Gentiles, to all peoples, not just Israel. And Jesus stands at this bridge between the old covenant, which was strictly for Israel, and the new covenant, which is for all peoples in all times. Jesus is the bridge between these ages, between the age of Israel and the law and the age of grace and all nations. Here's a fun word for you. You can impress your friends. This is an adumbration. Anybody know what that word means? Adumbration? It's just a fancy word for foreshadowing. This is an adumbration of what's to come. All right. Uh, the kinds of details present in this text give us a pretty clear picture of the ugly, evil, 
nature of the demonic realm. There's a lot of sensationalism around this these days. In fact, we there, there's like a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry focused around demons and horror movies and things like that. Um, and it kind of draws, I mean, it's meant to like draw people into that, but this should be revolting. So you have this unclean spirit. Where is he living? Where is this guy living? Yeah, in the cemetery, right? Among the tombs. I mean, that's weird. And this guy has this really inhuman strength. It mentions that night and day, I mean, this is a sleepless, tormented soul, right? Night and day, he cries out among the tombs and does what with stones? He cuts himself, is what verse 5 says. So you have a restless, tormented person obsessed with death and darkness, uh, engaging in self-harm alienated from relationships, ostracized from community. And this is not meant to be a, a picture of a human in a state of thriving or what God would intend for them. Um, you know, in some ways it's a total contrast to like the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, together. Uh, in harmony with nature, living in a place of life. Um, but our culture has an unhealthy obsession with these kinds of things. I mean, has anybody noticed, maybe some of you in the room are too young to notice, but I have definitely noticed over the last like two decades of my life, an increasing obsession with Halloween mm -hmm. and the morbidity of Halloween. Like maybe I just didn't pay attention as a kid, but I remember as a kid going, you know, trick-or-treating, and it was like, there's some hay bales, and maybe some dried corn, and some pumpkins. And now it's like, all these expensive blow-up statues, and moving demons, and weird skeletons. Is it just me, or do other people pick up on that? The death carnival by your old house. Yeah, there was a, like, literally, there was a, I mean, we wouldn't leave the neighborhood too often that way, but if we ever had to, I would go, I would drive a different way, because these people put up... They, they do it for Christmas, too, but um, they kind of go over the top. But they, they have this – I mean, there was one year where they had, like, out in their tree, like, severed limbs, like, with blood all over them. And, yeah, creepy clowns. It's weird. Some of the best trending shows on Netflix, too, are about yeah. obsession with serial killers. And I think that shows a serious rot in culture when you're drawn to these kinds of things. Um, you know, my, my family will typically go trick-or-treating just because it's an opportunity to kind of engage in some of the neighbors. You can put on a Marvel superhero costume and go get some candy. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But I will definitely do whatever I can to avoid the houses that are that kind of grotesque ridiculousness. Um, but a culture that obsessed with that is, is a culture in decay. And I think these things should be off-putting to Christians. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be so bold as to say this. <laughs> I do not think that even as a Christian, like, I, well, I guess it would just ask, like, if you're a Christian and you're into horror films, can you explain that to me? I don't mean to put anybody on the spot, but is there anybody in here who's like, I love horror films? I've never liked, I've never liked really awful horror films, but I was always, I always liked Yeah, and like suspense and thrillers and mysteries are a different matter, but like some of just the graphic, like dark, demonic, evil, 
that is incorporated into like the horror genre is just it's difficult for me to understand why anybody who loves the beauty of Jesus would find that engaging, interesting. I, I kind of remember when it, it um, you remember the movie A Beautiful Life? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Holocaust. Do you remember that movie? Oh, you mean Life is Beautiful? Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. I don't think I've seen that. Okay, well, it was in, I think it was in Italian. I think it was subtitled. But it was, it was about the Holocaust and this man who endured it. And they didn't have to show you anything. Yeah. Going on. They didn't have to. They could, they did just allude to it, even a shadow of it. And for me, I think that, that was kind of a aha moment. You know, I don't have to see this. Yeah. I don't have to see this to understand it. Yeah. And and I'm I'm assuming that's probably based on a true story? Yeah. Well I am not sure I don't think so. I'm, oh, I'm not, not okay. sure. Just a it man trying to trying to survive in a concentration camp with his little boy. Got it. Well, like I, I think you can make an argument like I remember my dad as a fourteen year old kid, he took me to see Saving Private Ryan in the theaters when it came out. Like you could make an argument for that kind of gore because it is like a historical portrayal of the horror of that. And there's something to be said about like feeling sick in response to that. Even the Bible has like sure. like stories yeah. that are like yeah. cool. Yeah. This, this is the reality. This yes, because you get to see the yes. depravity of man. But like, I mean, the horror genre seems to be sort of celebrating and in like, you know, Finding joy, entertainment in that. When, so, when the, the wicked guy is the hero of the story, that's an issue. I mean, it's one thing to have a battle between. Yes, that's a really good point as well. When, when, like, I mean, it, it's it's actually great to watch a show where the bad character is uh, sort of well well developed. But you want that to end with him being defeated in the end, right? Um, I mean, I actually enjoy, how, how do I put this? There are some movies where the evil character is so well developed that you just hate this person, right? And so when they're defeated in the end, you're just rejoicing. Like, I love that idea, but we have flopped that where, and I didn't see it, but somebody was telling me one of the new Marvel movies, the uh, Eternals, I think is what it was, Eternals, you realize that like the bad guy is actually the good guy from like kind of a Christian moral perspective. The and anti-hero is now the big thing. The, the media, the like gray character. The yeah. One that's not, you can do a little bad and a little good. Well, no, the, like the Joker, I think it's a good example of oh, yeah. like you are, it's like a trippy movie because there is no good guy the whole movie. Mm. And then you feel really bad for that bad guy. But the bad guy is like super Yeah, bad. that's messed up, right? Like, yeah, they're mm-hmm. trying to make people like ambiguous. Yeah. Like, you could be too. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting. Okay, so this is a tangent, but John Milton right, uh, wrote the book Paradise Lost. And, you know, it's kind of a it's, a, it's an epic poem. It's one of, you know, a classic in English literature. And it begins with like the fall of Satan. And Satan kind of comes to earth and he says, well, if I can't be God in heaven, then I'll be... You know, he says, better to be a ruler on earth than a slave in heaven, right? And what's sad is the romantics in that period of literature, so the romantic poems, the romantic poets of of England and America picked up on him as kind of the noble, um, the the, the likable rogue, right? So they really actually thought that Milton's hero in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, was Satan because he was he was like a self-made guy you know um which is really weird and tragic um and i i don't know how you get that actually i mean his his character satan's character in that work is very developed but he's also a fool obviously okay well uh, let me give another example of this um does anybody recognize the name foucault or foucault french philosopher so he was a philosopher, like it, he was prominent in the 1960s and 70s. His philosophy undergirds much of our modern sexual culture. He wrote on things like psychology, cultural studies, sociology, Marxism, critical theory actually comes from his writing, if you're familiar with that. It's you know a hot topic these days. Um, 
we've got children in the room, so maybe I won't go into the details, but let's just say that uh, Foucault liked to do things to children in cemeteries. And is, there's documented evidence of this. He would spend time in Tunisia, and he would essentially take these kids into the cemetery and, you know, it just makes sense, right? It all kind of goes together. The sexual perversion, death, abusing other people, all of that comes from this worldview that just spurns and rejects God. Um, he ended up dying of AIDS. He rejected Christianity, all the traditional Christian morals, and he just was a horrible, horrible human being. And of course, today he's lauded as like a brilliant philosopher whose ideas should shape and inform uh, the Western worldview. So the point is this, the fruit of evil is very evident, just as the fruit of righteousness is evident. Okay? I think you have pigs in here because as far as Jews were concerned, pigs were unclean, right? So it's showing kind of the unclean nature. I mean, the spirit is even called unclean in verse 2. Um, so where does the spirit go? Oh, well, it's called unclean again in verse 13. Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the unclean pigs. It's like this is where they belong, right? Okay, so this man is tormented by the demons and he's freed by Jesus. And so the demon enslaves and torments this man. But what does the demon beg Jesus not to do? Look at verse uh, 7. Yeah, right? Isn't that kind of ironic? So you have this sort of hierarchy here. Man is taken captive by the demon. The demon is taken captive by Christ so that man can be taken captive by Christ. Um, but you have this, this reality that, that we all understand where... Um, and this is an extreme example of it, but, you know, why can Jesus say, do to others as you would have them do to you, and that be a good ethic? Because even if you are a sick person who likes to torment other people, you don't like to be tormented, right? Like, the thief does not like to have his house broken into and have things stolen. When, when somebody is convicted guilty of murder, often they appeal the death sentence so that they don't have to be executed, right? So you might be happy doing evil to other people, but the ethic do to others as you would have them do to you makes sense because nobody likes to have this stuff done to them, right? Even the demon doesn't want to experience torment. I think C.S. Lewis, I uh, think, said uh, one thing we all have in common is nobody likes selfishness. Nobody likes to be treated the way Yeah, treated. right, right. Um, and it is funny how hard it is for us to learn this. I mean, I'm saying this to my children all the time. Like, do you enjoy being treated that way? The, no, then why, do, why would you treat other people that way? Right? Um, so this is just the nature of evil. It does not want to suffer what it enjoys making others suffer. So you can ponder that. And maybe the best application for that is like, when you are engaging in behavior that you know is displeasing to Jesus, or may, let me put it a different way, sorry. When you are suffering under behavior from other people that you know is displeasing to Jesus, that should be an opportunity for you to reflect and, and just ask the Lord, like, am I guilty of this with anybody in my life or in any place in my life? Convict me of that so that I can be repentant for that. Uh, because we all love to see ourselves as victims, but we're victimizers. So I'm using this word captive. I've used this word captive, right? The man is kind of taken captive by the demon. Um, it says that he has an unclean spirit. But to what degree can demons captivate us against our will? Vampire movies, you have to invite them in. You know, you can't, they don't even walk in, you have to open the door. 
I think that that is absolutely true. James can say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? Like all it takes is for you to put up a little bit of a fight. Um, so let's clarify. They're not really asking, hey, can I come in? And then you say, okay, come on in. That's not, that's not how we're inviting them in. No, I, I think a better way, and I was just talking with somebody about this this week. I don't know why, but I think a better way of thinking about it is like if you leave the front door wide open, they're going to come wandering in, right? Um, and I'm not even talking talking about like unlocked. Like you're just leaving it wide open, right? Um, and so I think, you know, things like pornography usage, things like horror films, things like enjoying darkness and Halloween and like music, all... Music, music. Yes, music would be another one. Drugs, alcohol, like potentially the kinds of people that you're hanging out with. Now, I'm not suggesting that these all lead to like demonic possession, but what I'm saying is... You're, you're, you are a willing participant. You're not resistant when you're engaging in that kind of behavior. People uh, talk about like the, the senses have being like gates, and you have to guard your gates, like keep my hearing. So yeah, my the senses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you put into your body, what yeah. See, what you see, yep, gates. totally. Gates to my soul that I'm just not putting watch, watchmen at. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating that James can, he doesn't even say, invoke the name of Jesus. He just says, resist the devil. Like, the devil is looking for easy prey. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't still, you know, assault and attack and wage war against us. But James does not complicate this. Like, these enemies are looking for easy prey. Um, So... I think you've got a man here that, I mean, we don't know his backstory, but I don't think he ended up like this because, you know, just one day this demon showed up and took over his life. He was probably a willing participant, at least at the beginning. We've kind of debated this when we've talked about it, but about somebody who has, who's filled with the spirit, who's a Christian versus somebody who's of the world, one being possessed, you know, somebody who can yeah. be, be possessed. If you fill with the spirit, can you be possessed, you know? That's a- yeah, well, part of what I'm trying to do, even by talking about this willing aspect, is is remove the idea from your mind right. that possession is this thing where your will is wholly consumed right. by another and you have no participation in it, right? So, like, that's how we tend to think about it. Like, I was a good person and then one day a demon came and possessed me and now everything I do is evil because this other thing is operating right. on me, Right. And I don't think that that's like what the Bible has in mind. Um, so, but as far as the believer goes, if we can use that idea of a, of a house, I mean, when the spirit is dwelling in there, there's light in there. Like the door is locked, the light's shining out the windows. Like the demons are not interested, right? They, they're going to flee from that. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. But, okay. And, uh, I mean, maybe kind of a summary of this whole like idea regarding the torment piece is the holiness of Jesus is a torment to those who do evil, but salvation for those who love righteousness, right? I actually don't think that, I think sometimes hell is, is communicated to people as this place where you are cut off from God, but I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think the suffering will be, the holiness of God will be abundantly apparent to you, and it will be tormenting. Uh, we, we watched this um, show, What is a Woman? Yeah. And as soon as <laughs> the guy is asking, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to find what is true. Like, even the word true is appalling to some people. Like, they don't want to talk about it. They get, like, offended yeah. right away. It's like... yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, that um, I think that's a guy, right, who responds. Yeah, that yeah, I'm just really offended by that word. Yeah. Like what? Wow. Wow. Crazy. That's an interesting film. That's not true. <laughs> I'm not offended by that. I know you really are. <laughs> Wait, say that again. What do you mean? When he says I'm really offended by that word, well then I don't really know that you're really offended by the word. That might not be true. Like mm-hmm. I mean right. How do you know that's true that you're offended by that? Right, right. Yeah. The inherent contradiction of even any claims. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and if you're offended by truth, then what in the world are you doing in an academic institution? <laughs> Attempting to pursue and write things that you think are true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're living in a world that's just absurd, but let's not get off on that tangent today. So the demon begs, this is a really interesting, I mean, there's a lot, I'll be honest, as I was like rereading this, I'm like, man, there's lots of stuff here that I just do not have any clue what's going on. <laughs> um, but the demon says in uh, verse 10, well, I guess it doesn't say, but the verse says, that the demon begs Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. I'm not entirely sure what that means. <clears throat> there are some like biblical scholars who uh, argue that um, God, in sort of the creation of the spiritual realm, gave like regional like created regional deities, angels that were responsible for different regions of the earth. So this comes out in like, is it Psalm 82 that talks about like the divine council? So maybe that's what's going on here. Uh, I think we tend to think of um, demons as a network that is cooperative, but they're not, they're, they're, they're selfish, right? So what I'm getting at is it's sort of like, you know, a, a small cage full of starving hyenas. What are they going to do the first time one hyena shows weakness? Yeah, they're going to eat it, right? So this may be an indication that, like, this demon is being shut down by Jesus and doesn't want to go to that region over there where there's another, like, more powerful demon because then they'll become subject to that demon. I, I don't know, but I think it's just a weird statement doesn't want to go out of the country and then frankly i don't i, had, I don't have the slightest clue why jesus other than the symbolism of pigs being unclean i do not know why in the world jesus would permit them to go into the pigs and then drown the pigs where do they go from there i don't know back back to somebody else i'm not sure i would have enjoyed all the cheap bacon over the next couple of weeks though Anybody have any thoughts on like the regional deity thing or, or a better explanation for verse 10? I'm wondering about the word country. I wonder what that, if it's, you know, where that derives from. Does that be referring to Possibly. Yeah. I didn't look at the Greek. I guess I could have. I, I would imagine, though, if it was something like earth, that it would have used like land or something like that versus country. Well, I could look into that a little bit. Luke says they begged him not to send him to the abyss. To the abyss. And, um, you know, reserved for the, you know, the pit of darkness reserved for angels. And Matthew says, you know, don't torment us before the time, which is their yeah. the ultimate demise will be the pit, the pit. right? Yeah. The abyss, so... Yeah, so Jude references that. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 2 that references that. You've got Revelation 20 that talks about this. So that that God put uh, the de or the angels that rebelled against him, he, he put them in gloomy chains of darkness until the final judgment. So that doesn't mean that, that this demon is not in gloomy chains of darkness. It's possible that, you know, there's only so far that they can go that they have influence, those kinds of things. They're maybe their minds are captive. Maybe that's what that means. But I, I think probably that that would be a better explanation is like, don't banish us from this realm. This world. Yeah. This they, 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 I mean, even they didn't want to be in this. No, absolutely not. No. So is a space line between two places or limits or plowed into the cultivated earth? There's another word for that. So I don't know. There could be. A yeah, so maybe that's just the best English word, but like realm might be a yeah, better one. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, I love that, that uh, here's this man, and I think Mark is drawing this out. Here's this man. No one can bind him, not even with a chain. Multiple people cannot subdue this man. And yet, I mean, Jesus doesn't even have to say a word before the man comes and falls at his feet. 
right? Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, right? I mean, that's the kind of power that Jesus has as the Son of God over all the realms. That just to see him from afar brings this man with his demon to submission to the feet of Jesus. So, you know, Christ is so powerful. Like, we have nothing to fear. Even, even when it comes to supernatural powers like demons. When he, when he sent them into the pigs, to me, I, I kind of got the feeling that he's just dismissing them. Just, you know, sure. just go away. <laughs> sure. And that, that's a really good point. Yeah, and probably, you know, if it was me, I'd be like, I don't know, I'd banish you to, like, the Andromeda galaxy, right? But Jesus is like, whatever. Sure, pigs. This is a herd of, herd of pigs. Does that mean that, that they were being cultivated and raised, or is it just wild pigs? Yeah, they would be cultivated. So Gentiles. Oh, Gentiles. Yes, these are Gentiles yes, on the okay. east side of, right. of the lake, um, not Jews. It's it's funny though because uh, you know I always saw this big battle of Armageddon. You know, there's actually a you know a force on the side of evil. You know, but anytime you see the demons, they're just cowering, man. There's like, yeah. don't don't send us into the abyss. Don't don't before it's our time. All these things like there's just no yeah. there's no like you know there's no no actual no fight, actual right yeah. resistance. Right. Yeah. Well, even when you look at Revelation uh, 19, where Jesus defeats the armies of the beast, Satan. I mean, it's literally just a word, right? He defeats them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Why does Jesus not cast the demons into the pit? Well, and like you said in Matthew, it says before our time, so like that's reserved for a certain time. Yeah. And I think that we have to accept this idea that the kingdom of God for this age exists alongside of these kingdoms that are in opposition to it, right? The kingdom of Satan. I mean, Satan at one point is called the prince of this world, mm -hmm. or you have men, you know, humanity, men, people trying to build up these kingdoms, you know. And as Christians, we just have to accept that the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing that exists alongside of these kingdoms that are in rebellion against God. Anybody final thoughts on this passage? Do you think there's any um, correlation to 29 Holy Spirit comes out of a man and roams through waterless places and rest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if these spirits are not like fully conquered until the time comes and they're cast into the pit, then. They're wandering from victim to victim or willing soul to willing soul, I think. It says they can't cross waters. Somewhere, I think, in the text, in some texts, it says they can't cross water like I'm not familiar with anything like that. I think that passage is just talking about, like, they, they wander through inhospitable places looking for more hospitable habitation, right? So there's kind of that resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Right versus, yeah. If your home has been put in order and the doors left open, that's a great place to go hang out. You know, if you take that section in Matthew, it almost sounds like this guy possibly had a demon before his house got swept in order, and then couldn't, the demons couldn't find a place to go, so they came back with tons of others because this guy had a lot. Yeah, that that would make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Demons travel packs, <laughs> and and I mean, if you're, the, the, I, maybe this just shows too that there's no like neutrality. Meaning, if you cast out darkness but you don't fill it with the light of Christ, then you're not you're not in a safe place. Like you can't just be neutral. neutral. Yeah. And I'm I'm back in that Matthew one. Yeah. Sticking out to me. Will bring back. They'll bring back seven other spirits more evil than itself, implying that some demons are more evil oh, yeah. than the others. Like it's, uh, yeah. Sure. 
So why do you think uh, Jesus doesn't permit this man to come with him? Yeah, right, that he can testify. He can begin to sow the seeds that Paul and the apostles will later come and continue to water with the gospel. Um, that would be my guess. So the Decapolis, is verse 20, is this region in like the northeast area of the Sea of Galilee, Deca meaning ten, so this area of ten cities. Um, it comes up a couple of times in the New Testament. Well, let's move on to the next section. Is that all right? Verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again, man, Jesus is just hanging out in boats a lot. Has anybody read, uh, has anybody read the um, Wind in the Willows? No. Where Ratty says, I think Ratty says to uh, Mole, there's just nothing so good as messing about in boats. I think Jesus must have agreed with that sentiment. <laughs> it's a good thing you've recruited fishermen. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jairus fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, well, Jesus is uh, once again harassed by a great crowd. My podium is falling apart. So Mark uses this word crowd uh, 34 times in his gospel, which is quite a lot considering it's only... 16-ish chapters. 16-ish. We'll get to that problem later. That's an adumbration of the end. Okay. Uh, but he uses this word 34 times in his gospel. I'm trying to remember what the Greek word for crowd is. I think it's haklos or whatever. Nine times he uses uh, the adjective great. Great crowds. So this is a lot of people. He mentions crowds in chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 14, and 15. So only chapter 1, 12, 13, and 16 don't mention crowds. That's crazy. So this does bring up an interesting question. 
if there are any skeptics in the room, I would ask you a question. How does a carpenter from a backwater town in the outskirts of Israel end up being one of the most na known names in all of human history, leaving such an incredible impression on the world? Like, I bet you that if I went up to somebody, if I did like a man on the street interview, and I went up to somebody and I said, tell me one thing about Jesus, they could tell me something, right? Mm -hmm. The son of Mary, you know, Jew, died on a cross. If I went up to somebody and I said, tell me one thing about Alexander the Great, I don't think anybody would be able to answer anything. The year that he lived, what he accomplished, who he was when he died, Right? Some of you are like, I recognize the name, but I don't know anything about him. Um, how is that possible? Right? Or tell me one thing about Augustus Caesar that you know. Well, because we have Christmas. I make this point all the time about evangelizing and saying everybody knows the name of Jesus. It's not saving faith, but like they can find out. They're not they ignorant. Heard of it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to talk about both sides of my mouth saying that, you know, like. I'm, I agree. I think everybody knows that Jesus claims to be God. It's like this, um, this big yeah. baby God, you know, or something. So what are you going to do with that? I don't know that I would honestly go quite that far, but the point I'm trying to make is you, if you are a skeptic, you have to account for the fact that somehow this man, who should have been, by all means, should have been a nobody, mm -hmm. has become the most known name in all of human history. How did that happen? How in the world is that possible? And I mean, you sort of get some of the answer here in the crowds, right? Like these people saw in this man divinity, something that they could not account for by natural means. Because it's so out of the ordinary, it attests to God working, him being true, that being true, in other words, is that what you're saying? Like yeah. the fact that this has happened points to the legitimacy of yeah. this. Yes. Grady Root, living in backwater Maricopa, right? Like, I'll probably live at least as twice as long as Jesus, have twice as much opportunity, but I'm probably pretty close to his socioeconomic class. Nobody two generations from now will remember my name. Nobody will care. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and people know this stuff about this man. But don't you think part of that is because of holidays? Like, we have Martin Luther King, right? People know that name in America, but they don't know anything necessarily about him. But every year his name comes up. And he's not, I mean, he's just a man. I mean, so it depends on what your society is doing with the name. And in that case, I get your point that, but it's not like his name's enduring without remembrance, you know, in places it can be forgotten. And all I'm saying is, yeah, it can be forgotten. That's true. But, you know, take the name Martin Luther King Jr. and go to Kenya, like, people are going to be like, I don't know who that is. That's what I mean, but, but it's because because we're repeating it over and over. Yeah, but endures. but how, totally, but even that, how does that happen? Right? Like, how does this guy who's a nobody get a holiday called Christmas that's about him, or Easter, that people all over the world through all different parts of human history since his life what have caused, thought about what caused that reputation? What caused yeah the there's there's nobody else like this in all of the world I mean, everybody no knows nobody Martin even close well, Muhammad's not to be old and just as old as I mean nearly as old as Christianity and his name has been perceived throughout the whole world I mean throughout the Muslim world since that time Muhammad Muhammad is probably about as close as you can get but he does not even have the same I agree. I'm not trying to yeah. Yeah. And I'm just saying, if you're a skeptic, sure. please explain that to me. Because I think it's inexplicable. What caused it to be repeated in Kenya? What, what, what caused this, yeah. this, this um, intense repetition? Yeah. Yeah, because the vast majority of the billions of people that have lived through human history will die and be forgotten, and no one will ever care. Sure. And the few that we do remember, are, are, are memorable for something more than you died, right? Like you taught some things and then you died. 
Um, Many of those people died to like promote his name. And true. They're forgotten, but they just made his name greater. Yeah. True. True. I think I think maybe what I'm sort of getting at here is I think a lot of times Christians are scrutinized where it's like we have to provide the evidence. And it's like, I think we should flip that around sometimes. Be like, you give me the proof, right? Like, why, why is the burden of proof on me? If you think that Jesus is not worth following, then who do you recommend? <laughs> Who's better, right? Uh, if you think that Jesus is not an incredible person, then can you explain this reality to me? Right? And if that reality is the case, then doesn't it mean that there's probably something more going on here than he was just some vague historical figure? Well, and, and a couple that <coughs> Do you believe George Washington was the first president of the United States? Have you ever seen him? Do you know that for sure? No, you're taking reading historical accounts, taking as good witness and believing it. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Totally. The Bible, these are historical accounts that have strong evidence for them, and we're simply affirming them. Why should we not? Yeah. Yeah, I, and you should abandon that George Washington was because you're not sure. Totally. But yeah. we can even go a step further. You're a materialist. You believe only things that can be proven in a lab. Can you prove that in a lab? <laughs> like, can you put your belief under a micro? Like, why do you believe that? Can you prove that to me in a laboratory? Sure. No. So even that is a, a totally um, so contradictory place to, to stand. So, all right. Um, the point I'm making is there's clearly something divine about Jesus, and the crowds knew it. They knew it from the things that he said, right? This is a man who speaks with authority. They knew it from the way that he had power over nature, the way that he subdued demons, the way that he healed people, the way that the things that he taught were transformational. Like, all of these things attest to the fact that Jesus is not merely some dude. It's interesting what she says to me. You know, I felt the power go out of me. I thought that that's just that blows my mind. That, yeah. You know, because of her belief, you know, she was healed. But I yeah. don't know why he's saying that. Just like you knew before he asked who it was. You know, I'm just yeah curious. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, probably G. Not probably. Jesus definitely had a sense of awareness that transcends our sense of awareness, right? I mean, it even says in the text sometimes he knew what was in their hearts, and so he. Um, <clears throat> but uh, okay, so you have this synagogue leader who comes to Jesus, the ruler of the synagogue, verse twenty-two. Can anybody kind of describe what the synagogue is? A little bit. Uh, wherever there was twelve or more Jews, they say um, in a town they would make a synagogue where they would go on the Sabbath and study the scriptures together. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't realistic for the Jews always to travel to the temple. I mean, they would probably do that at least once a, once a year to make some kind of sacrifice. And so, not in place of the temple, because the temple was a unique system of atonement for sin or repentance, but... Wherever there were Jews, they would start these local congregations called synagogues, pretty similar to the church. And actually, I would, I would argue that our modern expression of church is based off of the synagogue model. They would come together and probably sing psalms together, and then there would be a reading from the Torah, and then there would be an explanation or a brief teaching on what that, that might mean. Um, so... This is a guy who is responsible for the administration of that. That's what it means to be a synagogue ruler. Um, he might also be a, a, a prominent funder in, in the, the building and the maintenance of the synagogue. But at the very least, he's, he's probably actually pretty close to a pastor. Okay? He is the one that oversees that local congregation and the way that the synagogue gatherings unfold. So uh, it would have been pretty scandalous for this guy to seek out Jesus because Jesus is an unauthorized teacher, right? The scribes and the Pharisees are like, who are you? From, from what line of prominent Pharisees or rabbis do you come? 
you know, and Jesus doesn't come from any of those. Um, and so here is a guy who's taking great personal risk to seek out Jesus. It would have been scandalous because even though he's not a Pharisee or a Sadducee himself, he would, to some degree, be under kind of their oversight. He would have some obligation to them as the ruler of the synagogue. Um, and Jesus, of course, is at odds with the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, isn't it interesting, too, that this man gets a name? He's named. Why do you think that might be the case? Fact check. Yes, exactly. And I would say probably a little bit beyond that, or maybe in addition to that, is my guess is Jairus became a Jesus follower, right? He became a believer from this experience. Mm -hmm. And so, guys, you want to verify this story? Go see Jairus. You know who he is. He's the leader of the synagogue over there. He'll he'll verify the story for you. Show you his daughter. Show you his daughter risen from the dead. Yes, amen. And that's interesting because it's kind of in a contrast to the guy that we just met who was freed from the demons. We don't get his name, right? We just know that he's somewhere among the Gentiles telling people probably, not probably, that's what Jesus told him to do. But Mark writing to specific audience who would know yeah. the name who essentially could who right? know the name of the Gentile but Matthew also mentions or I'm sorry Luke also mentions Jairus by name yeah. um, that makes sense yeah and and that's also kind of bold too because this guy was willing potentially to, well maybe Mark and Luke didn't ask him for permission but here's a guy who's bold enough to say yes I will associate my name with Jesus even though my background is uh, a, a synagogue leader kind of under the scribes and the Pharisees who were probably out for him. He had enough faith in his daughter. He cared more yeah. about the daughter, his daughter's life, totally. his own name, his totally. status. So, I mean, that's something. <laughs> so, and, and this would be a man who in society would have some standing and some credibility. And so in a way, he's lending his credibility to the name of Jesus. Yeah. Guys, I, I, I saw this firsthand. I participated in it. You know what else is interesting? Who else got a name in this chapter? Mm. Actually, oh yeah, well, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about earlier in the chapter. I'm not sure what this means, I just think it's interesting. Legion. The, Legion. Oh yeah. Right? That's kind of interesting. Legion gets a name, Jairus gets a name. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what that means, but maybe it's just to show us that like the demonic realm is... Was Amitol supposed to look at the meaning of Legion? Yeah, yes, a lot. Right? A Legion, I think, is... Was it 10,000 troops? That seems too many. It's too many. I think it's something like that. Something like that? It's a whole lot. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. Maybe it's a thousand or two thousand. The point is, it is very, very many. Okay, well. Um, Three to six thousand. Is that what it is? Wow, it's a lot. Thirty-six thousand. And Jesus. And Jesus subdues them again, not even with a word, from afar. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll end on this note. Whatever reputation Jairus feels like might be at stake by approaching Jesus, to him it's worth the cost. Right? This man might be able to save my daughter, even if it means that my reputation, my standing among the scribes and the Pharisees will diminish as a result of me seeking him out out of love for my daughter and faith that he might have a solution to my problem, I'm going to go ask him to heal my daughter. Um, and Jesus had already proven himself competent to cure hopeless situations, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that Jesus doesn't turn people away who come to him with faith in desperation. Jesus turns quite a few people away but not desperate people who come to him saying, I think you might have a solution mm -hmm. to my problem. So that should be encouraging to us because we have a lot of problems. Jesus has solutions and he won't turn us away. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that you have all power and authority. Jesus, that you said that... Um, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And we thank you that you have 
shared that authority with us through the Spirit of God inside of us. And we thank you that we don't need to fear demons. And I pray that you would give us uh, a deep commitment in our will to resist them as your word commands and a deep faith that our God is sufficient and more powerful than these spirits. And we thank you for the fact that we know what happens at the end of all things when all these demons are cast into the pit of hell. And I pray that we would um, delight in light and goodness and beauty and truth and that we would hate darkness and all the things that are associated with it. And we thank you that for those who come to you in desperation, trusting in your power that you don't turn those people away. A bruised reed you do not break. And we thank you for that. And uh, I pray that we would live in light of these truths in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.